Hello, everyone, and welcome to The State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, here to another episode of State of Sport Management. We're kind of moving along, and after we just finished with Dr. Cunningham talking about his editorial role with Sport Management Review, I thought it would be good to kind of switch gears and bring in Dr. Michael Sagas from University of Florida to talk to us a little bit about research agenda, how do you establish that moving forward in your career, and then also collaborating with others through authorship and kind of the challenges that can happen from there. So, Dr. Sagas, how are you doing? Doing great, man. Thanks for uh, for having me today. Give me an opportunity to share some ideas about this. Yeah, so we'll kind of jump right in. So, Mike, you had talked about the importance of research agenda. So can you kind of take us from the kind of the cradle-to-grave conceptual piece of building a research agenda? Yeah, and that's um, it, it's something that you've kind of evolved into as you're – so I've been doing this. So I graduated in one um, with my doctorate, began a tenure-track position, I think in 02. So I've been at it, what, 16, 17, whatever years. And it's not something you know, obviously, right out the gate. And you don't really care to say to, you know, you don't, there's no blueprint for your research agenda. Because it's, it's fairly complicated. It's fairly complex. And it's yeah. very context-specific, I'd say. The institution you're at and, and your expectations for yourself at that particular institution or where you want to go next really defines how your research agenda will unfold. So given its complexity, I've been trying to find, anytime there's something complicated, I try to find a metaphor uh, to make sense of it. Some, you know, a metaphor being <laughs> something that's common and understood um, yeah. to most and can make sense of something that's a little more complex, such as a research agenda. So about 10 years ago, maybe it was before I, I arrived at Florida, so that would be 11 years ago at a NASA. We did a, uh, Janet Fink organized a symposium, and she put Lawrence Chow up, Chris Green, herself and she asked me to join. I think it was a stem from a doctoral seminar she came and did when I was at Texas A&M about establishing a research agenda. And then I came in with this metaphor of a baseball game as a, as a, a way to think through establishing a research agenda hmm. where your offense, if you know baseball. So again, again, metaphors are very good if, if it's commonly known experience and understood. So a lot of my, I find my American students um, have no problem with this metaphor and <laughs> making sense of it. Um, my Korean students have been no problem, but some of my uh, other international students don't, don't know baseball, <laughs> kind of falls apart. But, but generally speaking, you and I know baseball, um, so I can, yeah. I can speak as if we're on the same page for a minute here. Um, I, I look at your research agenda being an offensive strategy or your offense in your game of uh, a baseball game. I would say pitching in a baseball game is your teaching. And then the collegiality, just how, what kind of person you are, how you interact with your peers, the kind of work you're, you're just the contributions you make to a program or even um, uh, you know a professional society like NASM would be your your defense your defense. And you know in the game of baseball you have to hit to win. Um, you know and I think emerging scholars need to look at this game, the first game that they play being nine innings. When you're a PhD student, I'd say that's the first three to four innings of your game. And then when you're on the probationary period, you know, an assistant professor before you get tenure, that'd be the remainder of that first game. So I share this with our students every year in one of our doctoral seminars. I've kind of kept it up and polished it off a little bit. But, it, you know, it's a metaphor that implies that a research agenda is some kind of game. I think that's 
the disadvantage of using this metaphor, but the advantage is that you can look at it as something complex, like, you know, you have to be able to teach, you have to be able to, to, to have publications and, and that are coherent and systematic and build a systematic line of inquiry that you become well known for. Um, and if you look at a game being a nine inning or a nine year process from the day you walk on campus for your doctoral training to start until you're tenured, you can look at it more holistically and, and know that you know these things build on each other. So some success early in a game may pay dividends later in that game when you still have a lead, say, because you've scored a lot of runs. Um, and at the same time, you have to be able to teach. You know, if, you, if you're not a great teacher, then you better hit a lot. And if you are a great teacher, maybe you can get away with not hitting as much, not scoring as much on your offense, which would be the publication, the research agenda. And then you want to be a good colleague because you know if you're booting the ball around while you're uh, in baseball, you're you're pitching and, and offensive uh, productivity is is mitigated quite a bit. So I would say you have to hit, and I'll explain what I mean by that because it, it, it's great to say, oh, you have to hit. But what is, you know, if you know the game of baseball, um, you know. Um, you know, there's singles, there's doubles, triples, home runs. You can walk, you can get on base, you can get on on an air. Um, there's, you could score through sacrifice flies and whatnot. So I like the analogy because we use, when I was at A&M, uh, we, we kind of grew into this impact factor culture that kind of exists in the academy, and I think it still very much exists in a, in a few of our programs and in, in international. It's the international language of, of research um, quality. So really a proxy for quality, but the higher the impact, the better the perceived value or quality of that, that publication, um, regardless of you know, how, it, how it got in there, but that's the proxy. So it's a short-term kind of uh, shortcut to say it's good or not. So there's, you know, there's home runs, and obviously the advantage of that is you get a hit and a run at the same time. Um, and then there's singles, where maybe these are the lower journals that maybe you build up to. So you, know, you can score a run by hitting four singles in one inning, um, and if that's, you know, four lower journals that maybe will take your work and let you build some momentum and confidence so you could cite that work later in your game or in your, you know, your first game, you're in the fourth or fifth inning, for example, because you built some confidence and next time around you're going to do a little better building on that, that um, opportunity that you had earlier in your game. Um, but, you know, I'd, everybody would then have, if you use this metaphor and were able to buy into it, then you can essentially allocate what a single is for you at your institution. Uh, what's a double, what's a triple, what's a home run. And then, you know, so you had to have a strategy. So a research agenda needs a strategy, whether you look at it through this metaphor or not. Um, if you look through the metaphor, I like to ask my students, you know, do you want to swing for the fences every at bat? You know, you can be a singles hitter and, and doubles or a doubles hitter and hit for average and build your career that way. Um, do you want to just put people on and then have a big inning every once in a while when so you hit, I don't want to implicate journals, but, you know, with names of journals, but some of these lower journals that maybe aren't as visible and aren't as cited as well. Um, you know, I think most of us agree in our academy that JSM would be a home run. Um, but you can't hit. I mean, are you going to be a scholar that all you do is hit home runs? So you get in the box, and it's JSM or garbage can. Um, and there are a few of us that have, try, have tried that. You know, they're, they're a brand in, in essence, and... That's what they want to be known for is publishing these, in these high-impact or highly visible or prestigious journals. Um, but at the same time, if you swing for the fences every time, you're more likely to strike out way more often. You're more likely, less likely to get a home run. You're, you know, you're waiting for that big inning, and, and, and um, it, there's a 
element of luck and, and timing a lot of times when you're trying to just hit home runs with every opportunity you get to, to contribute to the literature. Um, so down, does that make sense at yeah. some level? I love this analogy. I, the only thing I would add to your um, add to this is almost kind of like your ownership is your university. They kind of dictate potentially what strategy mm-hmm. they want you to employ a little bit. Where if we're at a school like Temple, for example, which has a big TMP document and very specific journals that they might dictate more that they want you to hit more home runs because that's maybe more what they fit into. But yeah, that would be, but I love it. I mean, yeah, that's exactly, you're right. So that's like the ownership, the general manager yeah. <laughs> on your team. And uh, if you don't like it, you can get traded and go to some other, <laughs> some other team where they have a different approach, maybe in a different league altogether, right? You can go to the minors and probably be successful in this, you know, and that, so the analogy just, or the metaphor just keeps growing out. You know, you can go to a smaller institution where you could be a big fish in a little pond and, the, you know those singles you're hitting in the big leagues uh, turn into doubles and triples at some of those institutions. But that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, so my, you know, my strategy, what I would tell my, my, myself, my younger self, if I could tell myself, to start over and stay out of administration and just focus on my research. If I was that fortunate to do that over my career so far, but I would say my strategy is have a good on-base percentage. So every inning, so every year, you need to be finding a way on base, right? So it could be hitting nice doubles and singles. Um, occasionally you're going to get on in an air. That's fine. Take it. Uh, sometimes you get walked. You know, sometimes you get lucky. And, and, you know, so get people on base. Have a good base on base percentage. Um, advance your runners. So, again, I mean, you got to kind of understand baseball now at this point. But, you know, there could be a sacrifice fly or you're going to bunt a guy over. So those would be the presentations that you might do at, at, at conferences where you get information and you – refine your ideas and, and build a, a network of maybe following your work. Um, non-refereed publications could come into there, book chapters maybe, um, depending on the outlet. Some are very prestigious and depends on your ownership too. Like you said, you know, a book chapter might be a double at some schools. And in some schools it's not even getting you on base, so you kind of have to know the value <laughs> of it. Um, you know, and then you have to have the ability to hit for power to score big. I don't think you're going to build a, a – Systematic line of inquiry that's internationally renowned and move the field, move the needle in your discipline, your body of knowledge, unless you have some ability to hit for power. But it doesn't mean you have to hit a home run every time. So I, I, you know, don't wait for the beginning. Score early and often. So my doc students, if they're going into a research career, they better have, you know, three or four publications. So those would be hits. Ideally, they hit a couple doubles in there at least. So they scored a few runs early in their career. And then by the time they walk onto campus, They've at least had some track record. They have some some hits, some public some publications. But ideally, they've scored a few runs before they even start submitting work from their dissertation. Um, and then do not hit for the fences on each at bat. I would. Um, I, I'm more. My strategy is more hit the doubles, uh, get them over, you know, keep the pressure on, you know, and publish this. You, know, you publish your work in the best journal that'll take it. And if those journals um, don't take it, go to the next best one that'll take it based on the value that you assign to your offensive strategy. So um, to your point there, I like that idea of the, the ownership. So what kind of publications will count for, you know, singles, doubles, triples? I tell my students, there's at our, let's say at the University of Florida, um, the three factors that count for us. So the reputation of the journal at our university. Um, we use impact factor or H-index, some kind of citation metric. 
to kind of serve as a proxy in our college. The college kind of ranks journals annually in that in that uh, way. And then the prestige of a journal at another school, at, a, at peer institutions. So you mentioned Temple, you know, they have the A list or the A plus list, and they use a couple um, resources to kind of establish their metrics. Uh, we we use uh, Google Scholar, Publisher Parish, and um, we put the, the highest impact factors, the top 10% of age indexes, a five-year age, it's a little bit complicated, but the point is that know at your school what it what counts for those, and then know at your peer institutions, because those are the people that are going to write your external letters when you go up for tenure. So you might be hitting doubles and triples at your school, and if you, I get that letter of evaluation, or I'm doing a external evaluation for you for tenure and then you know if I don't know that or if I don't agree that that particular outlet is a double or a home run because it's a single or a walk here um, you know that so you got to amalgamate all that information put it all together um, what does your school expect your ownership your university expect what does the the body the community of scholars for us would be the sport management community if we're going up for uh, promotion at a sport management program um, and then I, I think you can't ignore the impact factor of the journal just because it's the international language of science and paying attention to that when you publish um, is important. Um, ask your ownership what's a book count for. You know, at, some, at our school here, books are not particularly um, of value in our merit system or our, our tenure promotion system. It's like getting on a bionaire. <laughs> it would it could be. Uh, it's a lot of time. You, I mean, getting on an air, you got to really work for that. Because <laughs> it could it could really suck a lot of your intellectual horsepower for months and months, not years. And we don't get a ton of credit for it here. And gotcha. then even non-referee publications, like you know, if you're doing commentaries, what do those count for? Um, and then presentations. Some schools have very specific kind of criteria, but. Um, some do not. But the, the point is you have to have a strategy. So to have an offensive strategy, whether you're using a metaphor or not, if you understand baseball, I, like, I really like this metaphor. I keep going back to it uh, for some of the reasons that, that you said. It just kind of makes sense, um, and it, it doesn't ignore the value of teaching or the value of being a good colleague and contributing. But at the same time, uh, you know, it gives you a, a, it's an ecological perspective that the environment it dictates a lot of this. Um, and you got to know the macro environment versus your micro environment, and you got to adapt and, and react within that environment. Yeah, and I like how one thing you brought up was thinking about external letters when you go up for tenure. That was something I probably rightfully wasn't thinking too much about as a doc student, but now that I'm in that probationary period as an assistant professor, it's something I think a lot, a, a lot more about whether it's. The journals I target, but then also the people I work with, because some schools, uh, at least here and or here at Texas Tech, and at least from talking to a couple other colleagues, that a lot of times they won't let you do a letter if you've collaborated with someone. Mm -hmm. And so that's also made me think about who potentially would do letters for me, and who I potentially would or would not want to work with, potentially saving them as an external letter and all that stuff. So I I don't um, obviously. Like you said, there's a lot of components you have to calculate in, but that was something I hadn't thought about before, but I have been thinking about more lately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And even, you know, like um, who you invite to campus. I remember when I was, I mean, we're getting off the metaphor here a little bit, but yet this is your yeah. networking, the networking piece. NASM, to me, I, mean, I used to love going to NASM. 
and now I, I like it. I don't love it as much. It's gotten so big. Um, and I used to be able to use it as an opportunity to network and really get to know some people on a personal level as well as professionally. And so you got to have other outlets now. I don't do, I'm not a social media person. Um, so, and I don't, I don't think that particularly, it provides an opportunity to really get to know anyone. It's that it's some form of that person's identity, this public identity, but it's not really that person. So finding a way of like, uh, you know, know the rules of the game, right? Like you said, if you publish with someone, you can't use them as a letter. You're not going to, don't publish with someone that, is in your area until you get at least your first promotion. But at the same time, what you're doing here, Matt, is a good idea <laughs> in that sense <laughs> of the networking. You know, you're pulling together some some voices and in, in perspectives and insights that can be shared broadly, which is awesome and great, great contribution. But at the same time, you're going to know some people that you normally probably wouldn't get to spend much time with because these conferences are short and, you know, you're in and you're out. And a lot of people are, are have, you know, catch up. My old students, it can take, you know, I could spend the whole conference just catching up with my old doc, my old, my previous doctoral students and previous colleagues, not really meet anyone new anymore, um, just because it's gotten so big. So, good, good point. Yeah, and not to kind of go on a tangent on this, but I totally agree with um, NASA getting so big that it is tough to catch up with um, too many people or even connect with too many people. So that's why I always recommend to people that are someone you really want to meet, if you want to meet Michael Sagas, and you should email him ahead of time and set up a time. Now, it still may not work out, but with so many people that these top-level people that they know or have worked with previously that they're just going to at least say hello or spend 30 minutes with the time runs out. Or you go to a place like when we had NASA in Orlando where I think a lot of people bring their family and spend time away from the conference that it even cuts further into that time mm-hmm. they can network with no people. Yeah. yeah, now people are leaving early, arriving late. I mean, you're right now. We're, I mean, New Orleans, I think, is our next, one, our next one. How many attendance would be 20% lower there in the morning sessions, I predict? Is there a hypothesis on why that would be? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's the rum. The, too much rum on Bourbon Street. It's not good rum either, yeah. so it'll, it'll hurt you in the morning. That's good to know. I've never been to yeah. New Orleans, so this will be a first time. Yeah, stay away from the rum. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> Anything that's mixed with that stuff, you don't want No, I, I mean, you know, you're going to have good time with a handful of people and some of those in a community you know a city like that that's great for a conference but you know the the spot the the chance that you might run into someone after a presentation and spend a few minutes with them or get into a conversation even during a presentation they're so short now the presentations are short uh they're they're the q a is is brief you know you have a chance maybe for two questions so you really don't really get to it's very superficial in my opinion so, yeah and i'm not trying to paid on NASM or, or, you know, it is what it is. It's grown. And there's other conferences that I go to where I do get to an opportunity to, to be more uh, engaged at an individual level with scholars. But um, if you're counting on just NASM, it, it is very important, like you said, to branch out and have have a strategy even when you go there. Yeah, it's a function of our field growing. It's not necessarily it, there's it good is. and bad on both ways. Exactly. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. So looking at like your Google Scholar profile and seeing it changes. Did you notice times during your curve where you made a, I don't want to say significant, but a, a change between what you were researching before to then what you plan on researching going forward from a topic perspective? Yeah, and you're, you're again, this this metaphor works for that too. And not that you were, te- I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. It's not like you're teaming <laughs> up here, but I really didn't. I mean, that's different than what we talked about before. But the idea that your first game, you, you probably need to be, 
have a strategy for that first game, what you're studying, you're building on your own line of work. You can, you can have some early kind of uh, some breadth early on in your career, but towards the of the game, the first nine inning game, but towards the middle of that game, you got to have depth. You got to be very strategic, very focused. Um, every year is a lost opportunity to to build a pipeline that because it takes a long time to publish good work in good journals. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a couple year process. So anything that's going to hit later is um, it needs to be the sooner the better. You know, you don't want to waste time that first game. Now in the second game, you can have a completely different strategy. So you can I wouldn't recommend pivoting completely. You know, you still want to get full professor and even when you're full professor it's a whole different conversation. Maybe you can do a a session or a, a show on that someday, but it's I've seen some people really struggle with that transition because it's like I've met all my goals and what do I do now and what you know what research and and you it's kind of this it's almost a crisis in some sense of uh, what do I do the rest of my career so in uh, as far as my intellectual pursuits not necessarily you're like you're changing and moving into coaching or something but um, you know you're staying in it but what are your intellectual pursuits so you you know you want to be narrow stay get in a lane at some point in that first game and stay in that lane and really be well known in that lane that has some trade-offs right you're not gonna be able to collaborate all right early days i go to nasm and my first nasm was 1999 in british columbia so oh, i was a nice. master's student back in the day uh george and i went to that first one together we were master george cunningham and i were master students together Pretty cool, um, overwhelming. You know, I got to meet some of the legends that we were reading about, the Chaladur eyes, and, and the, you know, and the guy took time to talk to us. It was really cool because it was like 170 people there or something. You know, it was really, really uh, <laughs> a quaint. Uh, uh, and there was nowhere to go. We were stuck on campus there, which was a beautiful campus. It was fun. Anyway, it's, it's compared to our last, you know, session where it's just, I don't know how many people were there, hundreds and hundreds of people, and um, difficult to. Uh, so you're you're. You, you do need to be careful who you collaborate with because we early on, like I said, I'd go to those and I'd come back with five new collaborations. I met so-and-so and I met so-and-so and I really love to work with that and that person wants to work with me. And early on, it's really attractive to say, you know, the one plus one equals three. I'm going to work with that person. I'm going to get that out and work with that person and get that out. And then it creates, it's, you know, your time is your most valuable resource as a junior faculty member. Um, it takes a lot of time just to be a professor, the teaching and advising and the, um, just the institutional expectations and norms of, of being an, uh, a, 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 you know, an academic require. And then there, what's time is left is time you get to use for your research and intellectual pursuits. So, you know, treat it as your most valuable resource. So, you, you know, you have to eventually in that first game, so I'd say in the first three, four or five innings, Maybe you can kick the tires on some unique collaborations and see if there's something there that the literature might appreciate or a new research question that maybe you haven't thought of where there is, really is a synergy, where it's, it is one plus one equals three, or is it you know, one plus one equals 0.5, you know, because you're, <laughs> you're, you're looking at the wrong topic, you're not passionate about it, you really have no interest in sustaining work in this, but you just want, or maybe you just made a mistake, and you worked with the wrong person. What you thought you were getting into isn't it. But at the same time, if you're doing it just to get a publication, that's not a good strategy. You know, that, those count less. Um, I even think, so like if you're, you know, you even got to think authorship, right? So if you get on a collaboration where there's four or five people and you're a middle author, 
those count less. It could be a home run, and you're the middle author on that home run, but at your institution, being a middle author on a home run might only be worth a single, you know, a quarter of the effort that you contributed um, to that intellectual work. Um, so you got to be mindful of that and then obviously pay attention to it if you can, if you can rationally pay attention to this. It's hard to a lot of times. Um, and then be strategic. You know, you're going to have to turn some people away um, that maybe want to work with you. And it's just not I – mean, you know, treat, your, treat your time like it's incredibly valuable. So now if, you're, you know, if you don't have ideas, you know, collaboration is something you need. That's a completely different story. Um, but it, once you get in your lane and your strategy is working in your game, you know, focus on your offensive strategy. Keep doing a good job with your teaching, evolve your teachings. That's always important nowadays at every school, even the, the bigger research schools. Um, and then, you know, think about changing or pivoting later in that second game of uh, when you're an associate professor. And then once you're a full professor, you get maybe a few other opportunities, several other games that will uh, be presented. So you can't do it all right now. You have to be strategic and a little bit selfish, to be honest. You do need to be selfish because the, the norms and expectations of our field being what they are, they don't particularly, um, and I wouldn't say endorse, they endorse collaboration, but they don't particularly um, reward it uh, as it, the return on that investment may not be worth it in the end, given that uh, what are you leaving, what are the opportunity costs, I guess is the bottom line, for, for getting involved in too many projects. Uh, that, that always should be the first thing you ask before you take on a collaboration. Yeah, to kind of tie these two topics together as we transition from like research agenda to authorship of some, I do agree that time value is a challenge because sometimes you'll take on a project like me and you could start a project we data collect and then not only do we have one paper we may find out we have two papers maybe three papers and then tying in with you said from data collection to publication can take years and now that if you're talking about two or three projects it's talking about two three four year time commitment to finish this project to like to the end and that's just where, yeah, I do think it's very, it's it's critical to find the right partnerships and right topics that you want to do just because the amount of time it's going to take to, to see it through. Um, right. Because, I mean, we don't sell, this isn't like Hollywood, we don't write a script, write an idea, and then sell it to someone else and they do it. Because <laughs> we all have way more ideas than I think that we have the time to actually pursue. And so that's the thing, it's like if you start something, it's just, it's an incredible time commitment to actually finish it up. Yeah, it's a great, great point. Um, well articulated. <clears throat> I agree. So thinking about those early, like NASM's early conferences, when you found people to collaborate with, were those other students or were those like full-time faculty that you were working with on collaboration? Yeah, it was both. I mean, the conduit, um, I think still now, back then, was through the students. So, you know, I when I came through, it was a pretty cool era where the Ohio State was churning out these you know, many of our legends of today, the living legends of today. So we would <laughs> hang out with them, you know, at the student breakfast or something, get to know them, and then they would be the conduit to some of their professors. And um, it was more um, open access, I guess, in a way. So, uh, yeah, the, the, I, both. So clearly students, that's the easy, that's the low fruit in a collaboration. They're hungry, you're hungry, you know, there's fruit there, take it, let's try it. Um, I don't discourage all my students from trying that. That's how you learn. You know, you're going to make 
you're, you're, they're gonna, not going to listen to me all that much, or this. They're not going to listen to our conversation and say, "Oh yeah, these guys are right. Let's not pick up too many clever." They're going to do it and realize the hard way. Like, yeah, I just lost eight months of my. It's something you can only life. learn, yeah, from experiencing <laughs> yourself. Yeah, and collaboration's a lot harder than it sounds. It sounds cool, but so I picked up. Like, I got to work with Donna Pastori early on, just because she would come to my presentations. I'd go to hers. I'd ask questions. There was some collaboration, and then, but most of my collaborations have been with at the time we were. I mean, still, if you look back at our at my Google Scholar profile, for example. A lot of they, you know, we we started our relationships pretty much as students or early junior faculty, where they were um, not quite like they were they were exploring kind of in in breadth with their own kind of uh, research and who they might enjoy to work with and you know collaboration is just hard it's just really hard you got it's one offs are, are not that hard they're not easy as you said you might you know you might have to grind through it to get it over with eventually and, and you know the opportunity cost can be severe but you maybe not even notice that you missed out on some other opportunity because you went down that road but having a true collaboration um, where there's you know I mean you just can't explain it it's hard to explain where a pair I, I think George and I Cunningham and I had a pretty good run where we would you know that it was a good mix of ideas and and uh, execution and access and um, writing complimentary writing and it was um, it's almost like we were finishing each other's thoughts when we we're on the same page. You know, we were all just moving for a lot of momentum. But that's hard, and it only lasted you know a few years. We were kind of kind of out of questions that we both were were um, intellectually challenged by, and you know we all evolve. And his, he went a slightly different path. I went slightly different path. Um, so yeah, it, it, the collaborations are so easy to talk about. I think even as administrators, and I was a department chair ten years. It's something deans talk about a lot, collaboration. You know, we want to bring people here so they can collaborate next door to each other rather than, I guess, I mean, it's not that hard to collaborate now. That almost never happens. You know, most of your collaborations are with, there's alignment of, of uh, personality, alignment of time, alignment of, of intellectual um, challenge between the two where the two complement each other and they respect each other intellectually um, and creatively. It's just it's hard, so pick those very carefully. Um, but early on, you you have like I said, you have to learn. How do, how do I know I can I'll be a good collaborator with Marlene Dixon until I do it? You know, I have a sense because I talked to her. And we're on the same page. We worked on a few things together. It was great. You know, I'd love to work with her anytime. But then there were others over the years, and even some of my students, um, some of my I don't know how many. I've had a, several PhD students that I've trained and and written with, obviously throughout their. Um, time when they were under my they were my mentee but I don't think any of them beyond that a couple that where we continue to work together because there's just too much there are too many factors that have to align for collaboration to work in some sustainable way where there's mutual benefits so I don't think there's anything wrong with going to those conference coming back with one or two trying it you can always abort you know before you get too far into that and I've seen that a lot from my students I get really excited and I say, it's great, give it a shot, you know, and I can almost predict the ending <laughs> on most of those. <laughs> but, uh, you know, until they, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, because, you know, again, there's there so many intangibles that make good collaborations work. There's really no way to really forecast it up front. So, um, you know, there's an element of luck as well, right place, right time, even in a, in a not in a, 
micro time, you're talking macro time. You know, there was a time when certain research questions, like those guys, the, the Funk, um, Trail, James uh, mm. group, I mean, that was just a perfect, you know, the moon's aligned on the work itself and the need of that, those questions being answered by our field. And those guys just worked really well together where they were at in their career. They had the time to give to each other, complement each other well, and they put out some amazing stuff during that run. Yeah, and something that you were kind of hinting at there was kind of like when you're in the beginning, you're more willing to collaborate almost in any situation environment because you're new, you just you need experience. But then as you kind of get further and further along, you may have you learn a few things, you realize what works well with your style, what works well for certain journals or projects, and you just kind of build in kind of some, I don't want to say like predictors, but essentially you build in some requirements to be like, hey, you know, if this works or if you want to do it on this topic or if we can do it in this amount of time and that you kind of find out. Because at least for me with collaboration, now I'm to the point where if I'm working with someone I have never worked with before, I'd try to talk to a couple of people they've worked with previously to see what they're like as a collaborator, what they're, what it's like working with them, how quick they work, all that stuff, sticking to deadlines. Cause like you said, this, it's such a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good point. I mean, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is something really like, you know, how many of our PhD programs are training us how to do proper, effective, successful collaborations? You know, there's a little here and there in our, some of our seminars, but yeah, the more we can share our, our uh, misfortunes and our successes, I think it's the better. Yeah. Better for all of us down the road, you know, make fewer mistakes in that, in that area. But good points. So when you decide that you're, you're going to do a collaboration with someone, like how do you walk through kind of the steps of deciding what sections are going to be, like what sections you're going to be writing, other people writing, authorship order, stuff like that? Yeah, that's a tough question because it's, it's so organic a lot of times. I don't know. I, I've worked with some people, they like to put it all out right, right at the beginning. Um, much more transactional, and they've probably been burned once or twice in their authorship order, so they, they feel inclined to do that. And I, I recommend that. That's fine. That's great. You know, put it in right. Get an email at least, or, you know, as we're moving forward with this. Can we just establish kind of what are the expectations, what are the timelines, knowing that it's just a plan those things change and some people fall off and then they still might expect to be a, a you know a, an author a contributor and if they are a contributor then they probably deserve authorship at some level so open and honest communication is the best way like you say if you've never collaborated with someone it's hard to have honest open and honest communication with them the more you've uh, the more you work with them and, and you see some some real you know, synergy and, and you're on the same page it's much easier just to say well you're first on that one. I'm first on that. Can I bring in my student on this? Why or why not? Um, and, the, and this is touchy for a lot of people. So it, the main thing is communication. But of course, I've noticed now. I don't know why. I always think I, I, back in the day. You know, we say we were young, and I'm not that old. But it seems different when I was young. But nowadays, students are a little bit of uh, intimidated um, at what I hear across. So we, you know, we have a doctoral consortium that we run between the southeastern schools. So it's basically the ACC schools that have PhD programs. And then we invite Florida State because they're in our footprint. And they hosted our first one. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And they had a lot of students, right? They, they do a really good job. 
uh, training the next generation. So, um, and it, we keep it in the foot. So we we did the first one in Florida State, the second one here. And we had, I think, when we hosted it, we had 54 PhD students amongst these five institutions. Oh wow! Um, and then it was hosted at South Carolina last year. And it was supposed to be University of Georgia this spring, but I haven't heard much about it. And it'll rotate through again. We'll do it. But the idea of um, what my students went last year and they came back and they're they're terrified of senior faculty a lot of them are scared of our own their own advisor just having conversations about this so, but i don't know why maybe it was always like that that you're intimidated um but you are not irrelevant as a student you know a lot of times your ideas are better than ours um, your skills might not be better but your training is often better and you, you know you have more opportunities more tools at your disposal because you've trained more recently than we have potentially so don't um even maybe you guys student, are just scary <laughs> that's what I guess that is uh, <laughs> unfortunately might be the exact thing I don't want to hear <laughs> maybe I'm just intimidating and not welcoming anymore like I used to be but maybe I never was so it's kind of a blind spot I think for many of us so but it 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 in I don't know I don't it's a perception thing I think but maybe not maybe this is something that's real as well at some level it's perception and maybe there's some kind of power being displayed there I don't I don't know, but if it's happening in my lab and my students, I hate it. You know, it's unacceptable, yeah. and it's heartbreaking actually to hear it if when it happens um, in my own shop. Um, but once I realize, you know, someone is, you got to have that conversation. So that includes authorship, it includes expectations. You know, and this we're talking training. It's more like when you're gonna do your comps or it's our intellectual property, whether we need a publication or not. It's if it's your work and you contributed it to the to the body of knowledge, you should get credit for that in the appropriate uh, order of intellectual contribution that you made to that work. So that if people can't speak up for themselves, it's it's something we, we need to really check ourselves on this and not, not exploit a, a group, a marginalized group maybe that just does not think they have a voice. Um, and we've seen it and we'll see it again, I think it's just, um, it's unfortunate. It's something we should be more honest about collectively in order to maybe create new norms around authorship expectations. Yeah, and kind of like a wrap-up question or comment is just talking about the conflicts within the process of, if, I mean, has there been times in the past where you potentially have had conflicts with someone that you're working with on an authorship on a paper, whether it's a directionality of the paper, authorship, uh, order, stuff like that? I mean, any any tips for people on how to to best handle those miscommunication and conflict moments? Yeah, the the I've had a few, and it's emotionally for those of us that can control your emotions, it's a lot easier. Um, those of you that, that it's harder to control your emotions, you can really say something stupid or react in a in a way. Um, so the best advice I'd give is if you're going to vent, uh, and you want to write that email, don't send it. Wait a day. Yep before you tell someone where to go with that, <laughs> their, <laughs> yes. their expectations of your work. Good advice. Uh, yeah, at least a day, maybe even longer. Um, I don't even write them. I just, because I don't know, I don't find any therapeutic value in that myself. Um, but yeah, definitely be careful, unless you just want to burn that bridge and, and anything on the other side of that bridge that may, that may have led to. Um, but at the same time, eventually, you do have to have the conversation. It's just how and when own and, and the, um, you know, make sure you're, you're ready for that emotionally 
because it, it is it's very frustrating these things are not I mean there's a reason you're asking I, you think it's a, it's a hot button issue in every field it's definitely one in sport management um, so being um, the more upfront you are with these expectations the better uh, and the more open and honest communication you can have without emotionally charged uh, filters in there I think is the best advice I can give somebody but I've even had even as department chair I'll get complaints from co-authors saying somebody did this you're one of your faculty you know stole my work or didn't give me enough credit or, <laughs> oh man you know, it's just uh and it's, it's usually the, the few I had were people that left our institution mm. hearing this after the fact but you know it's a serious academic sin <laughs> to steal someone's work without giving them credit uh, where it is not necessarily a sin, but it's an academic tension is this idea of, you know, where authorship needs to go, what you were supposed to do, what if you didn't deliver? So, like, a time, one of the reasons, just frankly, why I stopped working with Cunningham so much is the dude works too fast, you know? I can't keep up. I just cannot keep up. And he'd have an expectation <laughs> to get something out by, you know, the end of next week or something, and I'd miss that deadline, and then he might have to write it uh, to get it out himself, and or I'm, you know, I'm feeling guilty and shameful, and so I'd rather just not. I got to get out of certain things. So I didn't get aboard every opportunity, but I was very selective. And what I signed up for, I could deliver as promised, because um, it's just not worth it any other way. You just create, you do way more damage than you do good for your your career and even the the, the work itself. Um, to, if you can't uh, up, up, uphold your end of the bargain. Yeah, one of the big things for me is whenever I work with someone that's trying to under-promise and over-deliver, I think sometimes it's more frustrating when someone tells you they're going to get something done by X and it turns into X plus 50. <laughs> and then everybody just kind of leaves, yeah, feeling disappointed with how everything works. So it's kind of like, if I think I can get it done in two weeks, and I'll say three weeks just to build in that buffer in case something else comes up or whatnot, just to make sure everybody stays on the same page. Great advice. Great yeah. advice. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us today. This was awesome. I was yeah. really looking forward to kind of talking about agenda and authorship. I just think it's something that comes up so often, and we don't spend enough time thinking about this uh, process problem that happens for every one of us and how we deal with it on a week-by-week, year-by-year basis. So thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks again for doing this for for us. This is not an insignificant ordeal you've taken on, and forward to sharing a lot of these with my trainees and colleagues so thank you matt awesome well thanks yeah so everybody thanks for joining us here on this episode of state of sport management and make sure to stick around we're going to keep doing this and we have some further episodes kind of coming up looking at authorship getting reviews back how to handle what reviewers are saying what editors are providing recommendations and going from there